I think that friends have more to be angry about sometimes than family members. Um, and we certainly saw this with COVID. Um, when restrictions were put in for hospital visits, family members could not visit people. Forget about friends. Mm -hmm. you know? When wakes and funerals were limited to 10 people, entire families were shut out. Yeah. Forget about friends. Yeah. You know, so we were, we were not considered close enough to the people who died to be part of their mo the mourning for them. We had to find our own way. Welcome to the podcast, Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I help people convert their grief into growth in their own way and in their own time. This is a podcast where we dive deeply into the stories that make us who we are and show us who we can become. Together, we share real-life experiences of growth through our grief. I can be found at grievingcoach.com. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss exclusive interviews and some of my own tidbits and insights on grief. Welcome, everyone, on the show today for Share Your Story. I have with me Victoria Noe, an award-winning author, speaker, and activist. Her friend grief series, the result of a promise she made to a dying friend, recognizes the importance of friendships in shaping our lives. Noe's longtime HIV-AIDS activism led her to write Fag Hags, Divas and Moms, The Legacy of Straight Women in the AIDS Community, the groundbreaking book that honors the woman who changed the course of the epidemic. An accomplished public speaker, she has presented at organizations such as ACT UP in London, Mount Sinai Hospital, The Muse in the Marketplace, Book Expo America, and Open Hand in San Francisco, as well as libraries and bookstores in New York and the Midwest. During the pandemic, she has led workshops and online writing groups focusing on friend grief. Noe's newest book, What Our Friends Left Behind, Grief and Laughter in a Pandemic, is about people who have lost a friend during the pandemic, Is was recently published in June 2023. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Oh, thank you, Jenny. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Awesome. I'm excited to talk with you today and learn more about how important our friendships are um, in the grieving process and also how grieving a friend's death is different from grieving a loved one's death. Like sure. grieving a family member's death, I mean. Right. Right. Um, well, I should probably go back to why I started writing these books in the first place. Um, in the spring of 2006, um, I was having tea with my friend Dell at a coffee house around the corner from our daughter's grade school here in Chicago. And um, I told her that I had an idea for a book about people grieving the death of a friend. And at the time, she was in remission for the second or third time from ovarian cancer. And so she surely knew why I had this idea. And she said, oh, you should do it. Like, I have, I've never written a book. She said, that's okay, just do it. You know, and she would just 
flick her hand, you know, like a, she was swatting a fly away, you know, that's no objection, you know. So I did, six months later, she was dead. And it hit me like nothing other than, you know, my father's death the year before. Um, and, but I thought, I'm sorry, I can't keep this promise to you. And she wouldn't leave me alone. I mean, I, I truly believe you hear from people who died. And she was not done with me. And I'd, I'd, be, like, I'd be in a bad mood. I'd be worried about something. And I would hear her say, if you'd write the damn book, you wouldn't have to worry about that. <laughs> and I, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard her voice. <laughs> and, and I would feel her presence different places. And uh, so I thought, oh, my God, she's going to do this until I actually write a book. Uh And so I had to get, it took me a couple years to get serious about it. Because like I said, I knew nothing. I knew very little about writing. And I knew nothing about publishing. Uh So it wasn't really until the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, that I got serious about it. And... um, Along the way, a, a, another author suggested that I take this book of stories of people grieving their friends and break it up into smaller books. Now, in retrospect, that turned out to be an expensive decision because I was self-publishing. Um, but it was much easier for marketing. And as it turned out, you know, people who were grieving don't always have a real long attention span. Yeah. So short books are okay. So the first book came out in March of 2013. And it was called Friend Grief and Anger. When your friend dies and no one gives a damn. Mm. And the the title came to me um, a couple months before Dell died. I walked into her hospital room as her doctor was walking out, telling her that the cancer was back. And, you know, we, like I said, she'd been in remission a couple of times already. So we'd been through this, but it felt different. Mm. And um, she decided a month later to discontinue treatment. Okay. Which of course was her right. Yeah. But it didn't make her friends very happy, you know, because, Oh, come on. You did it. You've done this before. You can do this again. We'll help you. And yeah. um, and she was like, she was at peace with it, mm-hmm. even though we were not. And um, we had to give in. You know, I mean, we didn't have a choice. But it didn't mean we weren't angry. Yeah. And I, I truly believe that anger is the thing we talk about the least when it comes to grief. Mm -hmm. Anger is messy and it's not polite and it's not nice. And we tend to back off from people who are angry, Mm -hmm. but, but it's part of it. And um, I think that friends have more to be angry about sometimes than family members. Um, And we certainly saw this with COVID. Um, 
when restrictions were put in for hospital visits, family members could not visit people. Forget about friends. Mm -hmm. When wakes and funerals were limited to 10 people, entire families were shut out. Forget about friends. Yeah. You know, so we were, we were not considered close enough to the people who died to be part of their mo- the mourning for them. We had to find our own way. And, you know, as you mentioned, my book about straight women in the AIDS community, I've been in and out of the community since almost the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of terrible things happen to friends when families kept them away from people who were dying or just, you know, ignored or rejected the people who were dying themselves. Um, So friends then had to come up with new ways of grieving, and they did. And, you know, one of the things in my new book is about how do we do that now? You know, how do we do that when once again the focus is on the families left behind? And not to diss the families. I, I would never diss the families, but that leaves out a lot of people. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I've heard this statistic that um, when somebody dies, there are like eight people affected mm-hmm. by that death. And some families, they're some families are not that big Mm. so the reach is not just immediate family but like you said friends too friends and it's all kinds of friends you know you talk about these concentric circles of friends Mm -hmm. you know and you've got you know the first group is the ones you call at three o'clock in the morning when you just broke up with your boyfriend you know and then it's the ones that you go out for drinks with after work, you know, and then it's the ones that you don't see them very often, but you keep in contact. And then there's the ones who you may not even call friends, but they're people you see every day, you interact with every day, who you, you kind of rely on seeing every day. Uh And so there's all kinds of friends, you know, So how is the grief different throughout these different concentric circles? Well, I think that, you know, when I started writing what I thought was going to be one book, the title I had was, It's Not Like Their Family. Because a lot of people will denigrate the grief for a friend because, you know, it's not like your family, you know, it's not like it was your mother or your brother or whatever. Yeah. Um, that your grief could not possibly approach that of a family member. When in fact, many times it's far greater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, you know, you have no rights. You have no rights to visit somebody in the hospital. You have no rights to show up at a funeral. You have... You have no right. And so oftentimes, too often, you wind up grieving on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my clients um, is kind of in that boat. She was like best friend, soul sister 
with another woman and um they're not though they're not biological sisters they're close enough like sure to be sure. to be more 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 closely related even than biological sisters um mm -hmm. and oftentimes in the workplace you get like three days for bereavement leave but that's at for, <laughs> right at the most that's for biological family members right they don't have any kind of family yeah. It's a family. yeah 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 they don't have any clause for that close friendship no that's like even closer than a sister and so yeah, she had no, to work that's that's that. a big that's a big thing for me that bereavement policies are so out of date mm -hmm. and they're so unrealistic you know my uncle was killed in a car accident when i was in my 20s and I got one day off and I was 300 miles away. So I had to take time off unpaid just to go to his funeral, mm -hmm. you know? And so for a friend, it's like, you don't get any days off. Yeah. Likely. Um, when I started working on these books, I decided <laughs> I Googled grieving the death of a friend. And I didn't just look at the first page. I, I looked at the first 100 responses. Uh -huh. And the majority were tips on how to support a friend who was grieving, which is important, but that's not what I was looking for. Yeah. And there were more entries for grieving the death of a pet than a human friend. Oi. Especially if you typed in best friend, because if you put best friend, they, they just, Google assumed you meant a dog. Mm-hmm. You know, now that was, you know, 12 years ago, but still, you know, I, I doubt if the responses are all that different now. Right. That's, that's kind of disheartening. That's really disheartening, actually. That there isn't more support out there for um, and and recognition for the grief mm -hmm. that friends go yeah. through when right when they like yeah when their loved friends die yeah even the phrase loved ones usually implies family members. Oh, exactly. It doesn't. It doesn't include because it's friends, friends and loved ones, as if friends were not loved ones. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh. tell us more about your friend series, your friend grief series. Um, well, like I said, I, I promised her I'd write a book, one book. I did not promise more than one. Okay. Um, and then, you know, when this friend convinced me to break it up into a series of books, little books, uh -huh. they're like novella. I mean, they're under 15,000 words. They're little okay. books. Um, so the first one's about anger, because I thought uh -huh. that was a universal thing. Yeah. And then the next one um, was about losing friends to AIDS. Okay. Um, the one after that was about losing friends on 9-11. And then I did one on losing friends in the military, in the workplace. And then the last one is just about men grieving their friends. 
Nice. Um, you know, when I started interviewing people, I thought, should I even bother interviewing men? You know, because men don't talk, right? Mm -hmm. And so my first interview was with a woman who's a TV news anchor whose on-air partner died in a snowmobiling accident. And um, they notified her while she was on air. Because they, they pulled her off the air to tell her. And so after we did the interview, I mean, she followed up with me a couple of times because I would ask her a question. She's like, no, no, no. Then I never felt that way. And then she'd email me and say, well, actually I did. <laughs> um, so she told a friend of hers who's a sports reporter for the Chicago Tribune what I was doing. And he contacted me and he wanted to be interviewed. Oh, wow. His best friend, who was also a sports reporter, died suddenly the year before. And so we met in a sports bar uh -huh. where, there, where they used to hang out and where, I swear, there was a shrine on the wall to his buddy. Oh. So I thought, okay. And I had a whole list of questions. I had like 30 questions. And I thought, this will take 15 minutes, you know. He's uh -huh. not going to talk. So an hour and a half later, we were on question number three. <laughs> And, you know, ten, I still hear from him occasionally. Like when he went to Cooperstown for you know, Hall of Fame induction and wore his buddy's cap. Oh, that's awesome. You know, so, you know, I had, a, I had my own misconceptions that had to be uh -huh. destroyed. Um, uh -huh. But so the book on the interviews with men were the most surprising, you know, the the shortest was 45 minutes, and he asked me to come back and do another 45. Um, there were a couple that were three hours long. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, with them and with the women, what I thought at the beginning was a huge disadvantage was a huge advantage. I have two degrees in theater. I am not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not there to diagnose them or prescribe anything. I'm just there to listen. Yeah. You know, and I think especially for the men, but also for a lot of the women, they had never had the opportunity to just sit and tell the story of their friendship and why they miss their friend so much. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other big thing that I learned from the series was there's a lot of similarities between military veterans and long-term survivors in the AIDS community. Really? They both, you know, they lost friends in the middle of a war, really. And whether it was overseas or, you know, in the West Village in New York City, people were dying around them. Their friends were dying around them and they couldn't save them. And so many were dying, they could not stop to grieve them. Mm. You can't call a timeout a war. You yeah. couldn't stop the AIDS virus, you know, or COVID, you know, and you just you just had to hunker down and keep going. And um, it was about ten years ago where we start, started to see the fallout from that in the AIDS community. You know, military vets they had their places to gather. Mm. You know, American Legion or whatever. You know, whatever. And, and the AIDS community didn't have that. Yeah. And one very prominent member um, 
who had been in ACT UP New York in the old days, um, died. And he's just stopped taking his medication. He isolated himself and stopped taking his meds. Mm -hmm. And to this, it's been 10 years, no one, over 10 years, no one sure why he made that decision. Um, but it really lit a fire in the community to create and maintain support systems for long-term survivors. It's not just for day-to-day -day issues, but dealing with their grief because it was starting to bubble up. Mm. Wow. So are there centers now? Yes. Okay, good. There, there are a lot. Um, uh, a friend of mine who runs one program that's based in Chicago, when he started it, he's, he insisted to me that I was a long-term survivor. And I said, no, I'm, I said, I'm HIV negative. I'm not, I'm straight. I'm not. And he said, but you were there. You had friends who died. You went to memorial services. You were part of all of this. And I think that that was an important thing for me to accept because we all have a tendency to diminish our experiences. Uh -huh. Well, I'm not her mother, so of course her mother's grief is more important than mine. Yeah. That kind of thing. And it's, it's very annoying to me in the grief community that people will do that. Grief is grief. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do not, I mean, maybe most of the time you can't predict what your grief is going to be like, how it's going to feel. Right. So because of that conversation, um, I wrote an essay that won an award, and I started getting involved with long-term survivor groups around the country. And during COVID, I have led some, write, some of the writing groups that they have formed to talk about their experiences with AIDS and how it got triggered during COVID. And that's in a new book, too. That's awesome. Tell us more about that, like their, how their, their the grief from the well, AIDS got triggered from COVID. Well, it, you know, it, <laughs> as usual, when COVID started, I thought I was the only person having certain feelings right mm -hmm. and um i was in new york in march of 2020 the week that everything shut down i was supposed to be gone for like four or five weeks to go to a conference and to do a bunch of, bunch of book signings and talks mm -hmm. everything got canceled except for one event that got drastically cut back but by the time i got back from that six days in new york I started having these weird feelings, and I didn't recognize at first that they were flashbacks. Okay. And, and they were, and I was not the only person feeling them. Um, and I wrote a blog post about it, and it was like, I couldn't, I'm not sure what started it, but you know, there are pictures of medical personality spacesuits which is how they treated people with AIDS at the beginning of that epidemic. Mm. They were afraid to touch them. They wouldn't 
they wouldn't deliver their food to their hospital room for fear of contamination. You know, the funeral homes would not accept the bodies. The cemeteries would not accept the bodies. You know, people were stigmatized. People were afraid of them. And it took me a couple weeks. And, and finally, you know, my friends and I started talking online about this. And everybody was feeling it. And, okay. and, it, and it, it's not a perfect comparison. Uh-huh. You know, the viruses are not exactly the same. The responses are not the same. But a lot of them are very similar. And similar in ways that were very triggering and very difficult to deal with. Yeah. So how did you, not only how did you get through that triggering time and come to understand what was going on in the first place? Yeah, we'll start with that. Um, well, unlike when I wrote my other books this time, um, I started therapy about a year before, less than a year before COVID started. Okay. And um, I picked this woman because she's a grief specialist, not knowing how important that was going to be. <laughs> um, I mean, she is just, I could not have written this book without her. I don't know how I would have made it through the last three years without her. Um, and I really thought, at times that I needed to sort of tamp down because again, that whole, well, I'm not, what I'm experiencing isn't as bad as what other people are going through. Mm-hmm. And you know, some, there's always someone who's going through something worse, but yeah. you know, my daughter and I were talking not long ago about when a doctor says, so is the pain on a scale of one to 10, how's the pain? And she'd say, and she said, well, for someone else, it might be a 10, but for me, it's a five. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, I thought that was a great observation that just because you give it a five doesn't mean it's less than someone who has a 10. Mm-hmm. You know? But it, it, you know, Therapy has helped tremendously. You know, the the fact that these long-term survivor support groups were in place and able to go virtual immediately mm-hmm. was a huge help. Awesome. Huge help. So did you participate in those long-term survivor groups? Uh, I do not every week. I mean, not – it's my – my participation is pretty sporadic, but whenever they ask me to lead a writing prompt, I will do that. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, so I've spoken and I've also presented at some virtual gatherings during COVID mm-hmm. about this. Um, and I think that a lot of people in that community um, have found it incredibly helpful to write about what they're going through awesome you know not you know and not with the intention of publishing it necessarily yeah yeah. but just 
getting those feelings out there, you know? And if you don't have a virtual support group, that's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what a lot of my clients find too, is that writing helps them express whatever they need to express. The and you can express, and, and when you're writing, you can express it without fear of what someone's, how someone's going to react to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have, you don't have to edit yourself or try to make things sound nicer. No. Yeah. And it's something that's available at three o'clock in the morning when the grief is the hardest or at yeah. eight in the morning when the, the alarm goes up for the, to wake up for the day and you're not, what am I, what am I waking up for? There's nothing here. You know, and you can carry a little notebook with you all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, as things, as things happen or thoughts come to you, you know, and just write it down. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned that your dad died, correct? My dad died in 2005. Okay. And then that's... And then Dell died a year later. Okay. So what was the difference? What was the difference in your grief process or your grief journeys with your dad and Dell? Um, they both had, they both died from cancer different mm-hmm. kinds um i i think what was different about dell was i was one of many people who thought who felt like she was my best friend she made everybody feel important mm-hmm. um you know with my dad it was he was 300 miles away and i was going back and forth every three weeks to take him to chemo or do whatever to help him. And um, it was just, you know, everything was tied up with, you know, family. Mm -hmm. Some of that was great and some of it was not. And he was really the glue that held not just our family, my mom and my sister and I together, but extended family. Okay. He would step. He stepped in so many times for his nieces and nephews and cousins and everybody um, and friends, and so there was a there was a big void left. Mm-hmm. And I was still dealing with that when Dell died. Not, yeah. not going to lie about that. Um, but with Dell, I had the proximity that I did not have with my dad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we knew when each other was likely to stop by this coffee house, either after we dropped our daughters off or before we picked them up. Uh Um, You know, we knew we'd probably see each other at church if we were at a certain mass, you know. And so that helped in a lot of ways. Um, Because if you don't see someone for a while who's very ill, you can be shocked by the physical changes. Uh-huh. And with Dell, you you notice things sooner. Yeah, I think. Um, and um, you know, she had visitors right up until the end, and she had friends there. You know, one of her best friends moved in to help take care of her. You know, yes, yeah. And you know, that was just such a 
It was a relief and it was a blessing. And, and I think a lot of us wished we could have been that friend. Mm, okay. You know? um, but it was, she would, I only knew her for a few years, but it was such a strong attachment and still is. Mm-hmm. I don't mind saying. Yeah. Um, it still is. Um, I have this postcard on my desk um, that she sent me from Paris because she had taken her daughter to Paris over spring break right before we had that conversation. And um, it's on one of these little stands that holds it up like a a paper clip kind of that holds it up. Uh And every now and then it just falls over. And there's nothing going on. There's no (laughs) breeze. Not near it, nothing fell on it, it just falls over. I'm like, sorry, am I neglecting you? <laughs> you know? I mean, we do. I mean, I do talk to her. Uh-huh. I do talk to her, and I still yeah. do. And um, even now, you know, 16 years later, um, if you mention her name to any of her friends, the first thing they say is. I think about her every day, and I, I don't believe that's an exaggeration. Uh-huh. She left such an imprint on all of us. And I think about her, and I think about my parents, and I think about other friends and family who died before COVID. And I think how lucky they were, and we were, that we, they were not isolated. Mm. That we were able to be physically present with them. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I I did not want to write this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I wrote this book, Kicking and Screaming. Uh Um, The idea of writing about grieving your friends during COVID came to me before the end of 2020. And I talked to my therapist about it every week. And finally she said, why are you trying to talk yourself out of this? And I said, because I know where those other books took me emotionally. Oh, okay, yeah. And, um, and I don't want to go there again. Yeah. And she said, were you in therapy then? I said, no. And she said, well, you are now. <laughs> and so we've talked about the book almost every week since then. Yeah. You know, it's, um, people come to me all the time and say, oh, I've got an idea for a book. And it's often a memoir. And memoirs, as you know, very often, if not always, deal with trauma Mm -hmm. and grief. And I used to just be very encouraging. Yeah, yeah, you know, do it, do it. And now the first thing I say is, are you in therapy? What kind of support system do you have? Because mm-hmm. even if you think you have a really good one, I'll tell you right now, it's not enough. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine in the AIDS community wrote a memoir that came out about a year and a half ago. And while he was working on it, he sent me a message and he said, do you think I should be in therapy? I was like, <laughs> oh my God, you're not in therapy? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> It's like, no, I said, find one now, you know, before you go any farther. You know? Yeah. And, and he, 
he talked about how challenging to put it mildly some of the some of it was to revisit so much pain you know it was um so you know thank god i have a great therapist mm -hmm. um because she it's not that she talked me into it but you know she let me know that i wasn't alone yeah you know because your friends will say oh yeah write it go ahead you know We'll be here for you, and like, but I don't know what I need. Mm -hmm. And often that doesn't come out until you're in the thick of it. Oh crap! <laughs> um, when I was when I was researching the book on grieving friends who died on 9/11, I was in New York for the ninth anniversary, and there were all these events going on. And the year before, I had gone and really overdid it. So this year, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pace myself. I went to nine events in three days, including the naming ceremony, because one of my classmates from high school died, and they always mispronounced her name until, until the 10th, because I raised hell between the 9th and the 10th. But anyway, so I'm in New York, and at the end of the three days, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I went up to the Cloisters, which is a part of the Metropolitan Museum, at the northern tip of Manhattan in Fort Triad Park. And it's the medieval art collection, parts of monasteries brought over by Rockefeller in the 1930s. It's on a bluff overlooking the Hudson. It is the most tranquil place you can imagine anywhere, much less New York. And that was my reward. You know, I'm gonna go decompress there, right? Uh -huh. So I went and then the next day, I had lunch with my old boyfriend and sweet guy. I mean, really sweet guy. And I picked a fight with him in the restaurant. We didn't fight in public when we were dating. Oh. I had never picked a fight with anyone in a restaurant ever. And we walked out of the restaurant. He went one way. I went the other way. And I thought, what the hell just happened? Uh-huh. And by the time I got to my hotel, I realized what had happened was that everything I had gone through in those three days came out. Yeah. And he was unlucky enough to be there when it did. Yeah. Uh, luckily, he knew it wasn't about him um, and accepted my apology. But that was a real learning moment mm -hmm. for me. Um, and so when I went back the next year for the 10th anniversary, I only went to a couple of things. Um, and I have found during all this writing that every time I think I've paced myself, I haven't. <coughs> yeah, excuse me. I think I have this plan. I always have a plan. This is how I'm going to pace myself and it'll be fine. And it's almost never enough. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do when you get to that place of, dang, here I am again? When I get, as I've done research and interviews and just lived with this book for the past couple of years, there have been times when I had to walk away from it, literally walk away from it. Mm -hmm. um, I have to... 
I have to get up. I have to walk around. I have to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to become engaged with people in a different way. Yeah. It's not about grief. It's about something else. Maybe I make a donation to someone's Facebook fundraiser. You know, maybe I send an email to a friend of mine. You know, maybe I call someone up. Maybe I go out for ice cream. You know, just something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long I have to, you know, and I realized too, since that visit to the cloisters, that I can measure my stress by how long it takes me to relax when I walk in the door at the cloisters. So the times that I have been there to do research and do interviews, um, I know if I need to back off by going there. Because if I'm okay, I am like perfectly relaxed in 15 minutes. And when it gets to be 45 minutes or an hour and I'm still not relaxed, then I'm like, okay, okay, I need more. Yeah. You have to pay attention to your body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have you noticed that it has changed over the time? Like the signals that your body is telling you have changed depending on circumstances or depending on content or mm-hmm. what you're working on? I don't, I don't know that they've changed. Maybe I just recognize them sooner. Mm-hmm. I feel like I do not sink as deeply as I did in that particular instance or in a couple other ones um, because I can recognize the warning signals. Yeah. You know, it's like the flashing red light, you know, and it's a little bitty light when it starts and then it gets bigger and bigger. And Uh the key is to, to see it when it's little. Yeah. So that you can turn it off, you know. And like I said, you you have to listen to your body. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds you know, new agey or whatever, but but it's really true. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been one of my best friends died in February of last year, and it was it was really it was hard. It was one of the hardest deaths I've experienced and at one point I told I told my therapist she's like you know how are you feel I said I feel like there's a weight on me like I can't even stand up straight it's a real literal physical weight on me mm-hmm. that's holding me down yeah So what do you do to help lift that weight? Well, you know, obviously therapy helps. Um, yeah. If there are other people like my friend Christy who died, um, we met freshman year of high school in 1966, and we've been friends since then. Um, and um, she was very private. I mean, she rarely volunteered personal information about herself but she expected you to tell her everything she (laughs) you could mention a name of someone from high school and she would have an answer what they were doing now wow she 
she was like, a, I, I gave her eulogy. It was the first eulogy I've ever given. And I, in the middle of it, I said she was a human Google. You could ask her anything, and she had an answer. And, and I, you know, I loved her for that. You know, and I loved the times when, which were rare, when I could give her dirt about someone that she didn't know. <laughs> you know? And I could tell her something. And, you know, she wasn't malicious about it at all. It was, I don't know if that was just her hobby or what, but, you know, she just, and she remembered everything. You know? And um, so, that, you know, there were times when she would be in St. Louis where we grew up and I would be somewhere else. And she would tell me what was going on there, which is normal, right? Uh-huh. And then there was a time when I was in St. Louis and she was in grad school in Quebec City and she was telling me about what went on in St. Louis. And I was like, how do you know this? Like, by then I should have known not to ask, but, you know. Uh-huh. Um, her, her death was just a huge, it's in the book, it actually opens the book. Um, example of what we've gone through during covid when our friends have died or are dying. Um, I felt that weight for months because Christy didn't want anyone to know what was going on. Mm. She told me, she told another of our classmates, and that was it, like no one knew. And she did not want us telling, and we weren't going to tell anybody. I mean, we respected that. For yeah, her, yeah, you know? yeah. And, um, but by January... This had been going on for months. And by January, it was like that weight was crushing me. Mm-hmm. And part of that weight was not having people to share it with. Yeah. So my other girlfriend and I lobbied her, Christy and her sister, to let us notify our classmates. And, and she relented, and we sent out an email to them. Not a Facebook post, just an email to the class. Yeah. And um, and they responded, and they sent her dozens of cards, you awesome. know, and just, and Del had that, she had people telling her how much they loved her. I didn't, I wanted Christy to have the same thing, even though they couldn't tell her face to face. Yeah. And, um. Her sister said it was like Christmas, you know, every day there's all these cards in the mail. Uh-huh. Um, and that, when, when that email went out and the other girls in the class responded, I felt some of that weight lift because now there were other people I could talk to about this. Mm-hmm. Even though I still did not give details knowing she wouldn't want those out there uh, but yeah just in a general sense it made such a difference to me yeah i can imagine now you had other shoulders to share that weight yes. with yes and, and you know that you know i didn't know i needed them uh-huh i really didn't know i needed them not because i'm an expert at handling this because i'm not um but and when she died in February, um, I was able to go to her funeral. I gave the eulogy. Mm-hmm. And um, 
the funeral happened in between two ice storms in St. Louis. So there was a very small crowd at the church. And in fact, only two other classmates were there with me, which really made me angry because she deserved a church full of her friends. You know? And um, so I gave a eulogy and... I rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and I knew I could get almost to the end before my voice cracked. And I stood up there and I looked out over the very small crowd and looked at where the live streaming camera was, and I started talking, and my voice cracked in the first sentence. And I thought, oh, this is not good. Um, but I got through it. Mm -hmm. And... It felt inadequate. I mean, there were other people there. Yeah. Other, you know, her family was there. Other friends were there. But it, it didn't feel like enough. So in June, we had our 50th high school reunion, which had been delayed twice because of COVID. Uh -huh. And the last conversation Christy and I had I was just, I was struggling to find something to say. And I said, I don't want to go to the reunion without you. Because I knew that was her, that was all she wanted was to live long enough to go to the reunion. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I don't want you to go without me. And so when it happened about three and a half months later, I wondered if I should bother going. Yeah. And, but I went. And I got through almost a whole weekend without crying until the last event. We had this tradition. It's an all-girls Catholic high school. And okay. 18 of the girls have died. And every time we have a reunion, we have this ritual where you bring up a rose for each classmate who has died in order. Uh -huh. And so Christy was the last one, and they asked me to do it. And it didn't make me sad or anything, you know. And I was fine. And I walked up and I put the rose on the vase, came back and sat down. And my friend Judy grabbed my hand really tight and I just lost it. Yeah. And for maybe the first time in my life, I did not apologize for crying in front of other people. That's awesome. You know, it was, I was surrounded by friends. Yeah. Friends who loved her too. Yeah. You know, and I, I, didn't realize until that moment how much that loss of physical gathering was missed during COVID. Mm -hmm. Did that, that gathering in that rose ceremony give like the extra stuff that, that was missing from her memorial service? Does that make sense? Her funeral, her funeral was beautiful. The priest actually knew her. He, they, were, they met in college. So it was one of those rare funerals where the minister actually knows the person who died. Uh -huh. um, and he gave a beautiful homily. And I got great feedback on my eulogy. But it, it didn't feel like enough. And I don't know if it's because there were so few people there. You know, but... You know, so maybe the reunion met more because it was a target group, you know. These were all, these were her friends. Yeah. Know? Our friends. 
But it was, and it wasn't, you know. Like I said, I, it was the first time I didn't apologize. I didn't feel embarrassed crying in front of other people. And I think a lot of us, if not most of us, do feel that way. Mm-hmm. We apologize for crying. We apologize for losing control. Yeah. Like it has to get out somehow, it has to get out sometime. And the longer you suppress it, the worse it's going to be. Right. Whenever, like, tears come up a lot because I am a grief coach and tears are are very common. Um, Even in podcast episodes, like when I'm recording. And for me, tears are so beautiful. They are. Like, why wouldn't you cry? Mm -hmm. They're natural. They're normal. And they're justified, you know. This yeah. is not some fake thing to get attention, you know. Yeah. It's coming from the very core of your being. Mm-hmm. And But I think there's a difference between, you know, tears and crying. You know, I think a lot of people, even when tears start, they try to hold them back. Mm-hmm. They try to make sure there aren't too many tears. Yeah. That because they feel self-conscious, you know, or they don't want to embarrass other people too, because other people's reactions to people crying are not always supportive. True. Here's the tissue. Wipe it away. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So finding those places where it's safe. Mm-hmm. To let those emotions out is so important. Yeah. And it's a different safe place for everyone. Like not everyone has... Therapists are not safe places for everyone. That's right. Um, family is not necessarily safe. Absolutely true. So Absolutely you, true. It, it goes back to what you were saying. You have to find out what works you have to listen to your body and find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to bring up the subject. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, as immersed as I am in conversations about grief, I know that they're not easy to start. And, you know, part of it is because you're afraid you might get shut down. Or the other person might have some kind of a negative reaction to it. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's safe until you try. Yeah. Fortunately or unfortunately. You know, we've all been surprised. Yeah. Yeah. In a bad way. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any tips or advice because of your activism? um, How can we increase comfort or acceptance of grief and tears and crying? Well, I think one of the lessons of COVID has been we don't know how to talk about grief. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to deal with grief. We don't know how to have conversations about it. Um, 
And I think that we have been forced to confront that reality Mm -hmm. um, in many different ways, not just grief for people dying, but loss of jobs, loss of income, loss of housing, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's been all kinds of losses. Yes. Um, What I think what COVID has taught me about grief is you can't hide it. Even if you can't be together in person, you know, there are other ways to gather together. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was so grateful that, that Christie's funeral was live streamed. Yeah. We had classmates as far as Quebec and British Columbia watching the funeral, mm-hmm. you know. Um, people who could never have been able to travel, right? COVID or not, were able to participate. Um, and I think so. I think that in some ways, COVID has made gathering easier because it's given us that option. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be entirely satisfying, but it's something, right? It's something, and it helps with the isolation that we have all experienced. Yeah. Um, And I find myself, I mean, my friends are important to me before COVID, but they're much more important to me now. And I think that, you know, that, that threat, that imminent threat of illness and death, that we were all part of is responsible for that. Um, I did not lose any, well, I only lost one family member during COVID, but my cousin's son was murdered, but that wasn't COVID related. Um, I lost 14 friends, 12 of them last year. Um, Only one was to COVID but I could only go to Christie's funeral and one other memorial service. Um, you know, not everyone knows who your friends are. Your family doesn't know who all your friends are. Mm-hmm. You know, I have friends, not just all over the US, but in Canada, in the UK, in Ireland, in, you know, other countries. Like, yeah. my family doesn't know them. You know, my family doesn't know most of my friends, probably. I Mm -hmm. added them all up. Yeah. Um, So you wind up finding out your friends have died weeks later. And you've lost that opportunity to come together, even virtually, to grieve them. Yeah. Um, One of those flashbacks I had at the beginning of COVID was... um, in the early days of AIDS, the first 15 years, people would disappear. They would just, they weren't where you always saw them. No one knew where they were. Or maybe you found out they were in the hospital and the next thing you knew their obituary was in the paper. Mm-hmm. And that, that experience came back to me at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. And I became really paranoid about my friends. 
I assumed something was wrong. And way too often I was right. Um, I think my friends tolerate that in me pretty well. Um, they know they know that I'm going to check up on them if I don't hear from them. And it's not that they have to report into me. Yeah. But, you know, people died so quickly during COVID. And suddenly. Mm-hmm. And horribly. Yeah. And you were helpless. You're completely helpless. Um, so I think that, you know, what I've learned about grief is what most people have learned about grief during COVID. It's hard to talk about. Uh, you'd rather someone else brought up the subject first so you don't have to. Because mm-hmm. um, you'd still like to avoid it. But it certainly gave me a heightened appreciation for my friends yeah. and family. Um, but especially my friends. Um, and I think that's all to the good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to say something good came out of COVID, but, but I think that that's been, and I've seen that in my friends too. They will say the same thing, that their friends are, their friends were important to them before, but now they realize just how important they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing what, because COVID is still, in some ways, it's like grief where it's not really talked about and it's stigmatized and mm-hmm. it happens and then it's gone and nobody talks about yeah. it again. Right. And everything is back to normal like it was before. Mm-hmm. But it's not. No, it's not. You know, my husband, we lasted a long time without getting COVID. I got it last August. He got it last, this past February. You know, and both times was because we were around people who didn't wear masks. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had some long, some pretty serious long COVID issues that are getting better. But, you know, it's that overwhelming desire to put this in the rear view mirror. Yeah. Even though it's not over, we're just going to pretend it's over and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And it's not. People are still dying from COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also like grief, it's, there are beautiful things that have come from this time of pandemic, of grief, of loss, of change, mm. richer connections. Mm. Very much so. Well, and I think, too, you know, one of the things I always talk about people I interviewed for the Friend Great Books and, and has became its own chapter in the new book is the idea of how do we remember the people who died mm-hmm. how do we memorialize them yeah how do we how does our concept of a memorial change 
because a million people have died from COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no one answer. Yeah. No, and and unfortunately, we can't seem to get agreement on anything, even something as simple as a national day of remembrance for people who died from COVID. We, you know, because of politics, you know, mm-hmm. we can't even get agreement on something that simple. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that is complicated grief for a lot of people. Sure. But it's opened up a discussion, I think, that's really important, you know. You know, like the guy I interviewed who wore his buddy's baseball cap to Cooperstown. You find ways to remember your friends, to honor your friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe we we needed to get a little more creative during COVID in doing that. But, um, but we found ways to do it. Yeah. And what, I think that's a conversation that should be ongoing. How do we remember those people we lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it's going to be different for everybody. But there mm-hmm. is like, there is also value for a national remembrance, like a collective remembrance exactly. in addition to the individual. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, the whole idea of a physical memorial is like, how do you wrap your head around that concept? Mm-hmm. You know, there have been big memorials like the white flags on the National Mall, um, the lanterns around um, the reflecting pool the weekend of uh, Biden's inauguration, um, other ones that have been very site-specific, like a hospital in, in California or the Transit Workers Union in New York. You know, it's there have been attempts at this. I don't know, you know, it's like the AIDS, they're still adding to the AIDS quilt and it's been 35 years since it started, mm-hmm. you know. Anything that we, you know, I mean, anything that we do will probably be inadequate to a lot of people. Yeah. But I think it's worth talking about. Absolutely. You know, we can't, Pretend it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Too many people were affected by it to pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. So much work to do, and there's also so much good things, so many good things that are in the works and in the process of it. Yes. Yes. I think that in some ways, it unleashed a lot of creativity in people. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine wrote three plays during the first two years of COVID. Oh wow! You know, I wrote a book. You know, other people I know have written books. They've, you know, written music. They've done all kinds of things and and smaller things too. You know, but just I think. When we were able to move past the fear and the anxiety of the unknown, a lot of us found something inside of us that helped us keep going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, 
we were in a, we were asked to help in many different ways. You know, whether it was donating to a food pantry or banging pans so the medical workers knew we appreciated them. Yeah. Um, at my high school, my old high school, just like all the schools, you know, their graduation and prom were canceled in 2020. And the alum and one of the girls in our class went to the school and said, our class 50th reunion has been canceled. What do you think about us writing letters of support to the seniors? Oh, and we awesome. did that. And we did that. And it was, it was wonderful because, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, well, when we were seniors, Kent State shootings were three weeks before we graduated, you know, or Vietnam War was going on. It wasn't yeah. like, I mean, we told them that, but it wasn't like, well, we went through bad stuff too, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it was, we all have challenges and this is going to shape you just like our challenges shaped us. That's beautiful. You know, and the important thing to remember is that you have your classmates around you. You have the whole school community around you. And, you know, we would have never been asked to write letters to the seniors if it hadn't been for that. Uh-huh. You know, it, yeah. so, you know, I think that it, it opened up opportunities to give. And, and I found that just remarkable. Mm-hmm. It showcases how amazing humans can be, like in re in the resilience, in the resourcefulness, in the creativity, in supporting each other, in giving back, in bonding together, in building relationships. Yes. Some of our hardest times can bring forth the greatest beauties. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It was um, when I was writing the book about straight women in the AIDS community, I ha it got delayed twice. First, because I fell and broke my hand and bro broke four bones in my writing hand, of course. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through surgery and months of physical therapy before I could go back to the book. And a, a year after that, my mom died. And I was, I was driving 300 miles each way every week for months, three months, um, to help her. And all in all, I probably lost six months of work on that. Yeah. And she felt terrible that I wasn't working on the book. I'm like, it's fine, though. It's not going anywhere, you know. And... I think that it's a much better book because of that. And having gone through two different kinds of grief, mm -hmm. those two delays, um, made me a better writer. And, and so I don't regret either one of those. Um, you know, and I think that I knew someone I knew would die from COVID. I mean, I, that was just a given when it started. I didn't think there would be so many. I didn't think there would be friends who were so close to me. 
Christy wasn't the only one who was close. Um, and I wouldn't, I don't think this book would be as good as it is. Um, it's hard for me to judge at this point how good it is, but yeah. um, I don't think it would be this good if I had not had all those losses. Right. And I don't, I really don't think I've fully processed all of them. Of course not. <laughs> or even most, most of them. You know? yeah. um, because just like, you know, those early days of age, there were a lot of them. There were two in one day. That was a bad day. Um, and you, you didn't have time to process one before the next one happened. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm hoping you know, and trying to spend time sort of sitting with those losses now. Yeah. And I imagine that it'll be a lifelong metamorphosis, a lifelong metabolizing process. Oh, cer certainly if they're anywhere near as vocal as my friend Del, because I still hear from her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, um, and I miss all of them. Mm-hmm. I miss not being able to visit them, you know, in person, yeah. to, to comfort them, to, you know. I don't feel like there was much left unsaid with any of them. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't have a lot of guilt. Yeah. Um, but I think that was another COVID thing, too. It's like, you never know when that last conversation is going to be, take place. Right. So whatever you have to say, don't put it off. Because people deserve people deserve to know they're loved. You know, your mm -hmm. friends deserve to know how much they mean to you. Yeah. And it gives them the opportunity to tell you too. Mm-hmm. For sure. This has been such an amazing conversation, Victoria. Um, oh, for, thank you. It's so full of of nuggets and inspiration and the acknowledgement that we're all human and that we all we all experience grief mm -hmm. and that's okay yeah how how could you how could you go through life and not mhm mm you know, and I'm also encouraged that also during COVID, other people have been writing books about friendship, not about grief, but about friendships and the importance of friendships. Um, all of which so that I've seen so far have been written by women. So sort of my next burning question in the back of my mind is, why don't men write books about their friends, about their friendships? Yeah. Something to think about. Yeah, so that's you know my latest obsession. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. For our listeners who would like to learn more about you and your books, where can they find you? 
Well, they can find the books anywhere they're sold, but um, I recommend you go on my website. It's victorianoe.com, V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A-N-O-E. And um, you can learn all about the books, about events I'm doing, presentations I'm giving, you know, book fairs. Um, you can listen to podcasts I've been on, um, read interviews I've done, um, and sign up for my newsletter. Awesome. <laughs> That's the best way to keep in touch. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so before we close out, is there anything else you'd like to add for our audience today? Um, I think just that, like I said, one of the things that has really stuck with me from COVID is, you know, cherish your friends, you know, honor the grief you feel for them when they die mm -hmm. you know, and do everything you can to make sure you have no regrets for having failed to say what you, what was in your heart. Yeah. And, you know, it's the current book, the new book, um, at the very end, I have a call to action. And the call to action is when you finish this book, close it up and call one of your friends and tell them you love them. Awesome. And, you know, I know you're going to be embarrassed and they will probably be embarrassed too, but it gets easier after the first time you do it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say to people. You Perfect. Know, tell them you love them while you can. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on our show. And um, this has been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed this. It's been fun. It's yes, been fun. definitely. So for all of our listeners, check out Victoria's most recent book, What Our Friends Left Behind, Grief and Laughter in a pandemic about people who have lost a friend during the pandemic, specifically the COVID pandemic, right? Yes, but any cause of death. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. We will see you all next time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to or watching this episode of Share Your Story, Exploring Humanity One Heart at a Time. As you know, this is a podcast where we share real-life experiences of converting grief into growth. I wanted to take some time to share my gratitude to everyone who has supported me along the way. Thank you to my guests who have shown up and allowed me to delve into their personal experiences of grief, growth, and transformation. I appreciate your courage, authenticity, and openness in sharing your stories. I have learned so much from each of you. Thank you to my editors and producers, the Pod2Go team and Chad Nedland, who have helped take a tremendous load off my shoulders and kept me going as a podcaster. Their support has allowed me to do what I do best, connecting with others and taking a deep exploratory dive into grief experiences, showcasing not only how unique an individual grief is, but also how we can convert our grief into growth and goodness. And thank you to my listeners and audience. Our stories are meant to be shared, and without people like you to receive our stories, it can be tougher to express them. 
Most of all, I want to thank my amazing husband and kids for always supporting me and encouraging me in the work that I do. They have been incredible about keeping noise levels to a minimum while I'm recording. Not always an easy feat. And they are amazing listeners when I give them the lows and highs of my experiences from individual episodes to the process as a whole. Because of some major changes in my personal life, I have been dedicating my time, attention, and resources to my home and family. As a result, starting in September, I will be taking a sabbatical from releasing new content for the Share Your Story podcast. In the interim, check out or revisit previously published episodes. Our grief changes with time, as do the circumstances of our lives. What may not have seemed pertinent before could jump out at you in a whole new way. A major component in converting grief into growth is to always be open to the lessons it has to teach you. Remember that all of our experiences make us who we are. They are perfectly tailored to help us become the best versions of ourselves and to help us reach our fullest potential. You can turn your grief into growth. You are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters, so share your story.